for all who have led us in worship this morning, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring a word of proclamation and to continue our sermon series on Galatians. I'll be preaching from Galatians 2, verses 19 to 20. Listen for God's word coming to you and for you from Paul's letter to the Galatians. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let us pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. Amen. When I was a hospital chaplain, I received a phone call from a pastor friend of mine, and he asked if I could meet with one of his congregants. Let's call him Joe. I knew Joe a little bit. He had married a girl that I had grown up with in church. And Joe had made a big mistake. And he wondered if I might be willing to meet for breakfast and just talk. Rather for me to listen, for him to talk. So he scheduled a breakfast meeting. And I arrived maybe 20 minutes early to the meeting. And to my surprise, I saw Joe's car already in the parking lot. We greeted each other and we walked in together. And even in this brief encounter with Joe... He was different than how I knew him before. He was usually a neat dresser, but his clothes were all wrinkled. He was usually clean-shaven, but he looked unkempt. He was usually warm and friendly, but there was a distance to him, a palpable pain that he had experienced. And I asked him as kindly as I could, Joe, what happened to you? Through our conversation with tears in his eyes, he confessed that he had been unfaithful to his wife. He said his whole life was ruined. He had slept in his car the night before in the parking lot where we met for breakfast. It's quite an answer to the simple question, what happened to you? That same question is the title of a book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. What happened to you? Conversations on trauma and resilience and healing. Events in our lives shape us and form us. And sometimes events and choices make us better and sometimes for the worse. Perhaps you've had an experience like this where you've wondered, what happened to you? That same question rings in my ears in reviewing this passage. What happened to you? I imagine that Paul is asking this question to Peter in critique. For Peter and Paul have reached an agreement in Antioch that Jewish and Gentile believers could move forward in following Jesus without Gentiles needing to hold a strict keeping of the Torah law. 
But Peter has gone back on his decision on this. Peter also poses this question in Galatians 3. To the churches gathered in Galatia, who has bewitched you, he says. Or to my interpretation, what happened to you? Paul's own answer to this question reflects his personal transformation. We can remember that Paul was once known by a different name as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He persecuted Christians, part of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, and a strict keeper of the law. Acts 9 tells of Saul on the road to Damascus, seeing a vision of Jesus and being blind for several days. With prayer from Ananias, scales fall from Paul's eyes, and a new person proclaims the risen Christ and authors much of our New Testament. Perhaps this is fresh in Paul's mind as he writes that he died to the law so that he might live to God. Paul knows the responsibility of keeping the Torah, and that is no longer the orienting force in his life. Now, to be clear, often in discussion of these passages, Judaism is portrayed as a works-oriented religion. But as New Testament professor Scott McKnight states, Judaism is a covenant-based faith from which works flow as an obedience in order to maintain one's relationship to God within that covenant. Paul's new aim in following Christ, in contrast to his previous aim of following the Torah, is not a critique of Jewish Christians in obeying Sabbath laws or prohibitions on eating pork or about circumcision, but these comments rather seek to dissuade first century Gentiles from needing to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. For Paul to say that he has died to the law means the law is no longer his standard or inspiration. As Bible scholar D.G. Dunn puts it, Paul became dead to what had previously been his primary motivating force. And Paul uses this figurative language of dying in several other parts of his writing, such as dying to sin, dying to self, dying to the world, and now dying to the law. In contrast to Paul's death of the law, he states that his new orientation, his new aspiration and purpose for living is God. In other words, Paul suggests that Gentile believers have no use for a legalistic use of the law. Instead, the greater purpose of the commandments and Hebrew scriptures shows us the nature of the story of God and God's people. And the same is true for our use of the Bible today. One cannot find salvation or justification in a strict robotic expression of obedience to the Bible. But as Paul states multiple times, a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the good news in the universal. The grace of Jesus Christ justifies all who put faith in him. Jews are justified by faith. Gentiles are justified by faith. Not 
faith plus works of the law, not faith plus moral action, not faith plus biblical literacy, not even faith plus theological education. People are justified by faith in God and faith alone. This passage is not a generalized text, though. It's one of the most personal passages in Paul's writing, and perhaps in the canon of Scripture. Listen again to all the first-person pronouns in this passage. For through the law I died to the law, so that I'm, I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul shifts to the first person here, and the reasons why are debatable. Bible scholar Ann Jervis suggests that it might be rhetorical in bringing home the force of his argument by encouraging readers to identify personally with the consequence of his view. And part of this bristles with me, as I'm often skeptical of an overly individualized form of spirituality. Without others to test or weigh certain aspects of theology or biblical interpretation, heresies can abound. Without the fellowship of believers, a group of pilgrims for our journey, we can often be tempted to prioritize our own preferences or whims in selfishness or self-reliance. It's a common trope that I heard throughout divinity school. There are no lone ranger Christians. For as Americans, we do not struggle with a lack of individualism. Settlers pushing west had to rely on their own endurance, their own resourcefulness, and negative aspects of individualism still exist today in the forms of distrust and isolation and fragmentation in society. And yet, Paul is not so much showing hyper-individualism as he is being personal in his approach. God's covenant with Israel is with a group of people. And as Bible scholar Charles Couser notes, not with every single soul separately in isolation from every other soul. And yet these commandments were offered in individuality and to one another. You shall have no other gods before me. For the audience of Paul's letter, they are, they are varied in their perspectives. Jewish Christians are uncertain how to move forward in regard to their re relationship with the law. Gentile believers don't know if they're joining a new thing or an ancient tradition. And Paul, as a multiculturalist, speaks to God's inclusion and God's great love and unifying people from diverse backgrounds and perspectives by getting to the personal perspectives of the actions of Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, this personal language comes from Paul, and some have suggested that this passage could be read by substituting your own name within the text. 
For example, Paul has been crucified with Christ, and Paul no longer lives, but Christ lives in Paul. This week I learned about the personalized Bible, or rather, your personalized Bible. I had never heard of this before, but it's a translation of scripture that takes more than 7,000 personal pronouns like I or me and replaces them with your name. So Psalm 23 would say the Lord is Ben's shepherd. Ben should not want. When I first heard personalized Bible, I thought about a name engraved on the outside of the Bible. But this is not on the outside of your Bible. It's your name on the inside of the Bible. This concerns me a bit because we should not lose sight of the general picture of God's great love for the world. And we make a mistake if we translate John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and change it to, for God so loved me and only me. But a personalized Bible A personal gospel is beautiful because God's love is ubiquitous and all-encompassing and extends far beyond just me and you, but we should not lose sight that Christ died for me and for you. Yes, the community of faith is important and the fellowship of believers is essential and I could not overestimate the value of the gathering of the congregation But without all that, Christ loves you, and you, and you. For my friend Joe at breakfast, in the worst season of his life, he fell apart in the view of all that he had done wrong, and he expressed tremendous remorse. He also understood that being sorry and regretful that his life would probably never come back together to the way it once was. But as we spoke, I did not offer him a general, God loves everyone, or Christ died for the sake of the world, a more personal, direct message of the gospel was required. God loves you, even at your very lowest, Even at your very worst, even when you deserve it the least, God loves you. Paul continues his expression of justification by faith with a connection of your story and my story with the life of Jesus. As Jesus was crucified and died, you and I are crucified with Christ. In joining together in a death like his, we too are resurrected. Christ lives in us. As Paul puts it, yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. This can be a strange image for us, even uncomfortable. And I've had one such experience like this. I was in a vehicle that could self-park. The driver selects a button for self-park and Sensors allow the car to navigate and move into the desired parking space. And now, some models, if a parking space is especially tight, 
the driver can select self-park and exit the vehicle and allow the car to park on its own. When I was in a car that was parking itself, it was really difficult to disengage with the car in motion. It seemed wrong to disengage while the car was moving. But the call of Christ living in us is not a call to disengage. It is the indwelling of Christ living in the heart of the believer. This transforms the followers of Christ to see with the eyes of Jesus, to act with the heart of Jesus, to engage in the world the way Jesus would. This brings me back to my original question from the beginning of the sermon. What happened to you? When we reflect on the story of our life, when we share our faith or lie awake at night considering the status of our souls, the story that we tell should not be one of our own efforts, trying to do the right thing or to rise to the level of spiritual aptitude, but instead, the core of our stories should be the theme laid out by Paul in Galatians 2.20. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This personal gospel, it may not explicitly mention your name or my name, but I hope it tells your story. One where you know that God loved the whole world God also loved you, and Christ gave himself in great love for you. Paul's personal message to the followers of Jesus from diverse backgrounds spoke to the righteousness of God, not in passive resignation, but in active participation. For when I am reminded of God's great love for me, and you are reminded of God's great love for you, we can begin as a community to break down the walls of division between us. We can begin to be for others whose histories are different than our own. For as David French shared this week in a recent podcast appearance, when you feel a sense of belonging, you want to pull others into it. Today, all over the world, followers of Jesus are celebrating World Communion Sunday in cathedrals and churches, in living rooms and in wide open fields, people from radically different backgrounds can attest to the Son of God who loved them and gave himself up for them. We too are invited to a table this morning, a table with a general invitation for all who have faith in Christ, but also a personal invitation for you. You who died to the law so that you might live to God. You who have been crucified with Christ so that you may no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And the life that you live in the flesh is by the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen. 
You and I join with Christians all over the world in gathering at tables this morning for World Communion Sunday, and all who have faith are invited to participate. Participate in this meal as our deacons serve the elements. Let us 